0: Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krishnovskaya. On tonight's episode, we discuss narrative feedback and written evaluations with Dr. Susie Miner. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education.
1: We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account.
0: We had a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Beiner, tonight. We covered written evaluations and narrative feedback. She talked us through some great techniques to discuss uh, feedback conversations with students and then how to translate that into written evaluations. We go through some things to avoid and things to really try to focus on and include in your narrative evaluation. So I think a very helpful conversation. Dr. Suzanne, or Susie Miner, is a
1: family physician and medical educator. She directs the Clinical Faculty Development Program at Florida International University through a distributed community model and trains faculty in conducting medical education research, publishing, presenting, peer reviewing, and mentoring. Phew, she does a lot. Dr. Miner is motivated by principles of empowerment, self-reflection, responsibility, and growth with the goal of training physicians who will provide excellent patient
0: care and education. So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, Dr. Miner, thank you so much for joining us today. Are you okay with us calling you Susie?
2: Yes, of course. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Well, we just wanted to start with some rapid fire questions just to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself?
2: Yes, I am a family medicine doctor or a family physician who empowers others and loves nature. I served in the National Health Service Corps here in Miami before coming to medical education full-time.
0: Some do get out to the beach a lot?
2: Actually, no. With my skin, um, the beach oh. is a very place to be. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I totally get that. I totally get that. I'm on the same page. Wonderful. Uh, Susie, I was just wondering, do you have a particular book that you feel every physician should read?
2: So I have a few, um, depending on where the physician is, Anna Green Gables and Harry Potter are, are two of my favorites <laughs> Classic. for when life is really difficult. And then just for physicians to have read, um, there are a few, All the, Good, All the Young Men, Stroke of Insight, and The Body Keeps the Score are some of my favorite books that physicians, I think, would really have appreciation of.
0: I don't know those. Are they about illness or about medicine or...
2: So, all the young men is about a woman in Arkansas who got involved in taking care of young men who had AIDS mm. early on in the AIDS crisis. Um, and stroke. My stroke of insight is by a physician who had, or not a physician, a um, an anatomist who had a stroke, and she talks her way through the stroke and and the healing aspects of it. Um, and the body keeps the score. I cannot remember who it's written by, but it's about how trauma affects the mind, but also the body and how we can heal from trauma.
0: Awesome. Those sound like great resources. Do you have a favorite failure that you can think of that you'd feel comfortable sharing and, and tell us what you've learned from it?
2: So I think my favorite failure is probably not getting into medical school right away. I applied for medical school right out of college and didn't get in. Um, so I had a gap year before having a gap year was a thing. <laughs> we didn't call it a gap year in my time. We call it not getting into school, but it, it really actually gave me an opportunity to take a year and just work which was such a actually pleasure um to not have to do things after work all the time like like in school there's a never ending list of things you have to get done and and it really i think gave me some it gave me some grounding before i started medical school and some different perspective before i started medical school
0: i think we hear that so often that we have this idea of what our path should be and then we get thrown off of it you know, and, and we find out that it actually turns out to be a blessing in the end. Yeah. I really learned that
2: I had grit and determination and that, you know, I, adversity comes my way can I can overcome it. And I think that that's helped me to be a better physician.
1: I love that Susie. I feel like that piece of advice could be uh, taken by all of our listeners. And to that vein, I wonder what is the best advice you've gotten as a learner, as a teacher, kind of in your, during your career?
2: I think the best advice I've received is to be mindful with the words that we use. Words matter, um, especially with patients. And I think a great example of this is that a pediatrician taught me when I was in medical school, third year of medical school, um, instead of asking the, the patient to take a deep breath for me, the patient's not there for me, but just take a deep breath and to appropriately own my, my responsibility and authority in doing the physical exam, and also to have appropriate relationships with the, the patients that I'm working with. Like They're not here for me. They're there for them. And so all of my words that I, I use with patients, I'm really careful to make sure that they understand we're here for them and that they're responsible for their bodies. And as much as I can empower patients, I want to do so.
0: That is great advice. Thank you I am okay with skipping picks of the week unless you had a burning one era. I kind of do. I'm sorry, Molly. Go ahead. So, my burning
1: pick of the week uh, this this week is actually the show Ted Lasso on Apple TV. I um, binged watched it in the course of two and a half days. And this is a show that follows um, Jason Sudeikis plays a coach from, I believe, Kansas, who coached football, American football, but then is hired to coach an English soccer team. And the details are not important as much as I feel like there are so many lessons to be learned about teamwork, about life, about motivation, about believing in yourself from this show. And I've started actually following a few folks on Twitter who write about, hashtag med lasso and it's all these kind of medical education um applications of Ted Lasso principles we would say and one of my favorites is and i think it might apply to uh today's show is that he says we should be goldfishes because goldfishes have the shortest memory in uh of all you know animals and if we can just kind of move on past the 10 seconds of that goldfish memory and kind of move on to the next experience and Really cultivate that growth mindset. So for anyone, there's a free trial on Apple TV for a week. So you just start it and then you maybe, I'm not encouraging it, but you could binge it and then you um, you know stop the trial.
0: Um, but yeah, that's been something that I've been uh, really enjoying recently. Great. Well, let's jump into the topic today. Um, we'll start with a case to get us thinking about narrative evaluations as it applies to medical education. Uh, so we have Betsy. She's an NP student who you're working with in clinic. Her class has recently moved from a pass honors high pass grade to a pass fail, and her course director lets you know that her narrative evaluations are very important for assessing her progress. You're expected to fill out periodic evaluations for her. So just taking a step back, why are good narrative evaluations um, and written evaluations so important, and what do we use these comments for in medical education?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it, they're so important. So this – I. What what they are, first of all, is that we need comments from faculty. We need comments from those that are training learners, students or residents or nurse practitioner students um, in the clinical setting about what they're doing, how they're doing. Um, and they're vital for a few reasons. They help learners to know what they're doing well and where they can improve. Sometimes learners don't realize, oh, that I should continue doing that or I sh- maybe I should amend how I'm doing this. And these comments also help the course director to guide the student in learning on the clerkship or rotation. Also, it helps advisors or entrustment committees to recognize themes and help coach or guide the learners as well. And sometimes these comments are used by the student or resident promotion committee, um, if necessary. And then, actually, my original motivation for really getting involved in writing high-quality narrative comments was because students would ask me to write letters of recommendation for them, and when i would go back and look back the year before at what my comments were i realized wow i really need to beef up my comments i really need to do a better job in writing quality narrative comments so that i can write quality letters of recommendation for students
1: wow susie i feel like you just brought it home for us i think many of us have written those letters and wondered wow did i just get my message across or did i what did i just convey to the person reading this so Thank you for that. And I wonder when you are preparing written uh, evaluations or maybe even these letters of recommendation, how do you go about that? What's your approach to preparing that uh, type of written feedback?
2: So I I have a feedback process um, that I've kind of fine-tuned over the years. First, I label it. When I first started teaching, students wrote on my comments, Dr. Miner's great. She teaches all the time, but she doesn't give any feedback. And I thought, what are they talking about? I give so much feedback, but I wasn't labeling it. And the evidence shows if we're not labeling it, students don't realize that we're we're doing it for them. Um, So during the course of the day, if a student does something amazing, I'll say that. What you just did, that was amazing. Make sure you bring that up at the end of the day when we talk about feedback. And at the end of the day, I say, all right, team, let's do feedback. And I ask each person what they did well and what they want to work on, what areas they want to improve, and then also what stood out and what their smart plan is for what they do want to improve. And then I ask the learner to email me what their reflections were from feedback. And that way, that does a few things for me. I understand what they understood from the feedback conversation, um, and it also gives me written comments that I can then edit and keep on a Word document for myself for my assessment comments that I use for their evaluation. And I have the advantage of working with students for eight weeks. um, So I can really see their growth over time. So those smart plans that they write down and send to me, I check back in with them regularly. How are you doing with your smart plan? And that gives me more fodder to talk to them about.
0: I think that's a really smart approach. I like how you really include the learner in the process. And it also makes your job a little bit easier that you're, you know, having them kind of document for you to keep that in mind. Um, and so if you're working with a student on an eight-week session, do you do that every day or just once a week or? Just once a week. I
2: okay. am with students one day a week in clinic. So for, for me, it's it's not a big lift to do once a week.
0: Yeah, that's great. Do you think about incorporating competencies, milestones, and entrustable professional activities? Um, Like, how do you sort of integrate those into your narrative evaluations?
2: So at at my school, um, we have iPad surveys for our EPAs. So our students actually are proactive in asking faculty, hey, could you complete an iPad survey if they have just done one of specific EPAs that they need to do for each clerkship? So that's, that's one of the ways that we do it. And I love the EPA surveys because it's on an iPad and I can hit that microphone button and actually dictate my comments directly into the iPad, which is really time-saving. I also think about this idea of competencies, milestones, and EPAs from the 30,000-foot view of rhyme: reporter, interpreter, manager, and educator. And I think about where people are for those skills. And then I also, when I'm writing my comments, I use a framework that does follow the EPA as well. So history, physical, communication skills, assessment and plan and clinical reasoning, and patient education and oral presentations and then notes and teamwork. And then the other thing I think about is using the rubric. When I was a junior faculty member, the rubric was a really important tool that was useful for me because I could see, okay, the student's here, the next step in growth is here, and I could use that as a crutch to lean on for my comments.
1: Well, maybe, Susie, we can uh, dive into specifics about the narrative evaluations. Are there recommendations that you have about how to improve the way that we write a- a narrative evaluations? You kind of mentioned, you know, following the rubric and making sure to address certain elements, but are there specific things to avoid or specific things to highlight, wording to use? What would you suggest?
2: Yeah, so this is bread and butter for me. Um, I am a one-woman show in the South Florida area, teaching how to improve narrative comments. So, some things to avoid, which we're becoming so much more aware of lately, are racial or ethnic stereotypes. Really inappropriate, and they they still are written. Um, and sometimes people write them believing that they're being written in a positive or a kind way, but they're just not appropriate um, anymore. And I'm I'm trying to think of an example, and I can't think of an example right now. The more common example is gendered language. Women are kind and compassionate and caring or, and men are leaders and proactive and decision makers. Um, we, we still see that a lot in written comments. And one of our faculty was like, but Susie, we want students to be kind and caring and pa- compassionate. And I think the question is, would you write those comments about a man? And if not, then let's look at how we're, we're changing those and consider. Saying like how they're demonstrating those qualities, and I, I can talk a little bit more about the boss framework later. Um, another thing to avoid would be doubt raisers. So doubt raisers are just not appropriate. Um, so a few years ago, um, program directors were surveyed in how they prioritized information in letters of recommendation, and surgery program directors said that a description of the applicant's resilience was important. But they felt that saying that the applicant overcame personal setbacks was a negative phrase. And in my head, those two things are so close to the same thing. So it's really about how we frame things. So now what I do if I'm writing a letter for somebody going into surgery then I will say that they are resilient as evidenced by X, Y, and Z and how they demonstrated their resiliency. But to me, resilience is is demonstrated in overcoming setbacks. So that was such an interesting article for me to read. And um, I wanted to go back to doubt raisers for just a second. So a, a great example of a doubt raiser is for someone who is X, ethnicity or ex-gender, she did a great job or he did a great job. And that's just not not appropriate anymore. I think we can talk about, um, we had a student in one of our first classes who went to medical school in a different country, and then she came here and learned English and then went to medical school here. And we were able to talk about like, wow, this person has really overcome every barrier that is in her way. But we wouldn't want to say, for instance, for her letter, for somebody who is an immigrant, she did a great job. But we can specifically talk about she did X, Y, and Z to work to be where she's at. And then what, um, Nope, that's all you asked me about, right? What we shouldn't avoid. Well, we can
1: talk about kind of specifically, um, you know, moving beyond comments around everyone should just be reading more. Or if there's focus on kind of personality, like, ooh, for an introvert, she really tried or he really made an effort to, you know, talk to people. Something that kind of is no longer appropriate or probably shouldn't, shouldn't have been appropriate ever. Uh, maybe how do you teach other people to avoid those type of comments in your narrative evaluations?
2: Well, one thing we can do is give them feedback on their comments when we see those items coming up. And then I really encourage people to use rhyme and the rubric. I, I think that they're just so useful. So that reporter, interpreter, manager, educator framework is so useful because it helps think about the 30,000 foot view of where learners are from being a medical student all the way to being an, an educator and attending and when we think of that, then we can also consider where are they at and where do we want to help them grow to. Using the rubric, really, really helpful. As a junior faculty using it was helpful. And then I still use it sometimes if I'm especially with a difficult situation of I, I can't quite put my finger on what the issue is with a learner. Then I can look at the rubric and go, oh. This is the issue. There's an issue in discernment or there's an issue in conscientiousness and and talk about what the next steps are. I also think it's helpful to envision where you hope the student can grow and what then is their next step in growing towards becoming that physician.
0: And when you say rubric, do you mean the like the competencies or...
2: Yeah, so usually students um, are evaluated by the attendings at the end of a rotation. So we have something called the CASP, the Clinical Assessment of Student Performance, which is our rubric of how we evaluate students in their third year rotations. In residencies, then residents are evaluated by a residency Evaluation that usually links into milestone competencies. So the clinical competency committee can then easily use those evaluations to feed into their decision making and discussion process.
0: And you mentioned kind of thinking through, you know, sort of their ability to gather the history, their physical exam skills, their ability to synthesize that into a presentation, and then their ability to kind of communicate that and come up with a plan. Do you try to hit on all of those for each? Uh, evaluation or just focus on the few that you think they really stand out or really need work on?
2: One of my colleagues years ago used to start out every one of her evaluations with, this student's special gift is. And I I really like that framework. That really resonates with me. So I I do think about what stands out for the student and start with that because I want to put their, what stands out about them first. I want to put their special gift first so they know yes I see this I see what you're doing you're doing this really well um, and then I I think of, I do think through my in my headspace okay where are they with these with these different categories and what's next for them I also think it's important for us to come at it through a growth mindset Carol Dweck wrote a really great book of I don't even remember when she wrote it but it's called mindset and it talks about fixed mindset versus growth mindset and the idea that we can actually, put somebody in a fixed or growth mindset with the language that we use. And if I say the student is so intelligent, the student is so smart, the student is so proactive, I'm tending to put them in a fixed mindset. But if my comments and feedback and written evaluation comments are through a growth mindset about what I'm seeing also about their efforts and what they're demonstrating, that is really helpful. And that helps students to stay in a growth mindset that we can grow through effort and and continued application and practice.
1: Susie, I love that. It feels like we're running our narrative comments through a growth filter, you know, like realizing like I want to give, share this piece of um, observation that I had, but I want to run it through kind of how do I help the learner grow? And I wonder, you kind of said this in your uh, previous comments about what is, I want to envision where you hope the student can get to, kind of what is the next step in their growth? And how do you formulate those comments? Like, how do you take what you um, want to say about maybe, the redirective comments uh, in their performance in certain areas to a kind of next step? How do you formulate those type of uh, that wording?
2: That's a good question. So usually at the end of the day, when I'm having that feedback conversation, often students know, and m- most students actually will say, you know, I only did one thing well, and it's kind of a vague discussion about what they did well, and there are like seven things that they want to improve. So I, I really think that my job is to help them to narrow it down for what their next steps are. For instance, if a student is having difficulty with basic communication skills, uh, maybe they don't feel confident or assertive in talking to patients, or they don't feel like they can ask certain questions, maybe about um, sensitive topics, the sexual history or the social history about alcohol or drug use or smoking. And if a student tells me, you know, I really want to work on delivering difficult news to a patient. Well, that's like graduate level. That's that's higher level communication skills. And I probably need to help them with foundational communication skills first. So I, I think about what is foundational to help them to move forward? Where is the next step for them? I don't want to give them it would be like teaching somebody to ride a bike by saying, hey, here, go just get on this bike and go. I need to show them these are the pedals. This is how you move the pedals. These are the handlebars. This is how you how you maneuver the handlebars. And this is how you steer the bicycle and, and give them the next steps along the way.
0: And if they identify something knowledge-based and they sort of have a vague approach, like I just want to get better at my differential diagnoses, do you try to hone down and say, you know you pick a specific topic say like we should focus on or this this learner needs to work on their differential diagnosis for chest pain and i mean do you put very specific things like that into the comments
2: yes absolutely i i try to link it to something that we saw in clinic that day. Um, And for differential, I, I think of us as having teaching scripts, just like as physicians, we have like clinical scripts or diagnostic scripts that we have in our head. I certainly do have teaching scripts as well. And with around differential diagnosis or clinical reasoning, I always want to ask the student, like, what are our can't miss and most likely diagnoses? So if they're having trouble thinking of differentials, we can have them do organ systems. So, all right, for this complaint or this concern, let's go through organ systems and consider more of our differentials. Or the way that I approach it, which I think is a little easier for students, is what are the can't-miss diagnoses for this concern if somebody has a cough? Like, what are the can't-miss things that we should think of? If And I then they ask, what's, what does can't-miss mean? So, can't-miss to me means If I miss this, there could be dire outcomes for a patient. So immediate or long-term, cancer would be a can't-miss diagnosis. Osteomyelitis would be a can't-miss diagnosis. And then the other thing is most likely. So if somebody has a chest pain, can't-miss might be an MI, ischemia, heart failure, uh, covid Right has to be on all of our differentials right now, most likely for chest pain could be reflux or it could be gastritis. Um, it could also be fitness levels or, or COVID as well it could be most likely right now. Um, so I, I think of how we should approach differentials. And I do a lot of talking out loud when I'm doing clinical teaching as well. So hopefully students can also see that role model.
1: And Susie, do you end up um, recording this, like kind of like dictating as you talk, or is this the part of the conversation that you ask the student to kind of, hey, can you email me a summary of what we talked about with your SMART goals included? Because I can just imagine how much rich information you're giving them uh, in this conversation and just want to think about how our listeners and how we can, you know,
0: keep that, uh, keep a record of that.
2: So usually this is something at the end of the day that I would ask the students to send me some feedback on.
0: Are there any negatives that we should try to avoid writing in the evaluations? It's kind of this fine balance between we want people to grow, but also are there concerns that some of these written evaluations might make it into their dean's letter or uh, impact their chances of success in the future?
2: So I'm really careful to make sure I've had a conversation with the learner about everything I'm going to be writing in their comments. There should be nothing new in written comments that we have not already talked about. So that's a A foundational premise for writing narrative comments is that we should have had a conversation first with the learner. And I always want to frame it for the learner's growth. Um, The phrase that I like to use is, I want you to be a physician that I would send my loved ones to. And that helps in basically all situations. Um, If the student really needs some work, then, hey, I want you to grow. This is why I'm giving this to you. I care about your growth. This is why we're having this conversation and why I'm giving you this feedback. And then sometimes I feel like I'm giving very nitpicky Feedback, and then I'll say, "This feels nitpicky," but you are at a place right now where I can give you nitpicky feedback because I need to help you polish your skills. That's where you're at right now, and that is a great way also to to frame the comments that I'm going to give. And I, with this idea of of hurting students with their dean's letters, not all negative comments go in dean's letters. Some schools have um, I've heard above the line, below the line comments that these are the comments that I'm framing to make sure that they can go in the dean's letters. And this is where the student is for growth. This is the student's next next steps and growth. And it's it's so vital that we give written feedback about students' next steps. I don't think that we're hurting learners. I think this is our honest appraisal of the learner's skills and that we are helping them grow. Something else is um, schools can decide to have formative written comments, formative feedback, or formative assessment rather than just summative assessment. So for instance, many schools have many CEX cards or clerkship cards or shift cards. And often those comments are for formative purposes. So those comments are often written down and they don't go into any summative assessments.
1: Susie, something came up that you had mentioned earlier where you're writing these incredible comments, whether they're redirecting or reinforcing, but you're also reading uh, the other faculty's evaluations. And you had mentioned kind of giving feedback to faculty. And I just wonder if you were to read something that was negative or maybe a doubt raiser or something that, um, was inappropriate, how, how would you give that feedback or how would you kind of coach some of us who may have to do that, uh, to do that well?
2: Open conversation. So, um, I would probably approach it, I would understand the context of the situation and and think about in Miami and South Florida where I'm at, we have so many cultures down here. It is a buffet of of different cultures and ethnicities down here. And and check in. So I I use kind of a crucial conversation framework of, hey, I saw this comment. Can you help me to know more about that? And be really non-judgmental checking in about that. And then see where we go from there. And if it was meant to be positive, then I can say, oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying X, Y, and Z. And then I can... Say you know, there's this thing called doubt raisers, and and this might be perceived as that. And I, I'm sure you probably didn't mean it that way. I something else that I do is assume the highest motivation or the kindest motivation. People often live up to that. I don't think it's like it's not seen very often in politics these days or in the news cycles. But I I think it's so important in in life and medical education that if we assume the kindest motivation that we're being the best versions of ourselves. We are helping students to be the best versions of their selves. And we're helping colleagues to be the best versions of themselves. selves.
0: Great framework. I think it might be helpful to jump into some specific examples um, to kind of think about using some of these approaches in practice. So we have a junior colleague in clinic, Hannah, who is precepts Betsy on days that you're not there. And she's, Hannah wants to check in and talk about how Betsy's doing. And she wants your feedback about how the narrative evaluations that she is planning to write for Betsy look to you. So she writes, Betsy is a pleasure to work with. She's kind, empathetic, and helpful to patients. I would like to see her speak up more in clinic and express more of her opinions. So I feel like early in my practice, I maybe wrote some of these <laughs> kind of comments. <laughs> um, what stands out to you here? Um, and, and kind of how, how might we improve this type of narrative?
2: Well, if I'm the student and I read this, it looks like I got comments based on my showing up and breathing, and I don't really know what else specifically I need to do in the clinical setting. We need details. Um, We need a lot more details. So, as I said earlier, one of my my colleagues used to say, "This student's special gift is." So, I would encourage them to ask that. Um, I would ask them that. What was her special gift? What stood out about this student? And then let's go from there and and help them to really consider it. Because I I think people can talk more easily about their comments, but when it comes to writing, some kind of wall comes up, I think, often in our minds about like, ah, should I write this or should I not write this? And yeah, of course we can write it. We just want to use appropriate written filters. But we do need more information here. All of this actually could be seen as gendered. So pleasure, kind, empathetic, helpful. I mean, if they just put she smiled a lot, this could be a like a full smorgasbord of, of gendered comments. Um, also, I'd like to see her speak up more in clinic. Also, possibly a gendered, comments. So I, I think we, we need a lot more detail. So what is Betsy gifted at? What are her special skills? What stands out with regards to her clinical skills? And this could also be a rubric opportunity. I could say, all right, where did this student rate? Um, when faculty rate students kind of in the middle on the rubric, average or, or meeting expectations, those don't need comments so much. But I feel like anything above or below that rating absolutely requires a comment if the student is less than meeting expectations, or if the student is exceeding expectations, we definitely need to comment about why the faculty perceive that. And then if I'm the student, like I said, I need to know what to do next. Like, I would want more specific information. When should I speak up more in clinic? Do you want me to speak up more about my differentials? Do you want me to speak up more with patient education? Like, what are the specific times that you would like me to speak up more about? And I, I have to say, um, in Miami and South Florida, we have, a, we have some very different cultures, as I was saying. Every now and then, I have a very, very respectful um, student. Sometimes they have a lot of difficulty speaking up in a, in a setting, in a clinical setting, especially if the faculty member is a man. So I, I want to help that student to be more confident and comfortable with speaking out in different situations.
1: And Susie, just to get your expert advice, how do you say that? Like, how do you phrase, you know, I would love for you to confidently speak up more? Is there a a phrasing that you use that I think comes at it from a pretty neutral and objective stance?
2: I I think first you have to have a framework or a a trusting relationship with the learner to be able to say that. Um, I have had several students um, in that situation, and I, I wouldn't say that initially upon meeting them. But I, I also frame it. I want to help you grow as a physician. I know you're going to be awesome. You already are somebody who's quite trustworthy and who I really respect. Like When you talk about your thoughts in the clinical setting, they are point on. I think your next step in growth is to be able to talk about them with more people or more openly. Um, And then I I check in with them. What are your barriers? What's standing in your way? What's next for you? And I I let them know that in the family medicine clinic, it's a pretty welcoming, forgiving, kind atmosphere. Whereas in some other settings, we might have to be a little more assertive and speak up in order to be heard or seen.
1: I really like how you said what barriers exist, because I feel like, Susie, we don't often in our conversations, I think, encourage the learners to do their own self-reflection and say, hey, kind of, it's almost like a metacognition where you make a SMART goal, but then, well, what barriers exist for you making the SMART goal? Like you're almost motivationally interviewing the student or the learner. So I really like that uh, that framework because you're basically asking, is this goal gonna going to be achieved or what's standing in the way of achieving it? And maybe, Molly, should we go on to the next case? Would that be okay?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, We uh, used the skills that you taught us earlier and tried to rewrite Betsy's evaluation. So we say, Betsy has excellent communication skills. For example, during a patient encounter, she was able to discuss intimate partner violence with a patient in a way that was supportive and respectful. She's comfortable with physical exams, including performing detailed musculoskeletal or pelvic exams with limited input from the preceptor. As next steps forward, I would like to see Betsy round out her management plans with possible contingencies during her oral presentations. Any uh, edits that you would recommend there, Susie?
2: So that, that's pretty solid. Um, I didn't hear anything that was, maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear any doubt raisers. I didn't hear, I didn't hear any blatant like areas of, ooh, <laughs> <Like> nothing, <laughs> nothing struck me unless I missed it.
0: Awesome. We must have- That one was supposed to be a good one, so yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think having those, you know, that in the first one, we say that she's kind and empathetic. And really, I think what we're trying to get at is that she is a good communicator with the patients. And tying that back to a specific example of being able to counsel about intimate partner violence really helps to explain where you're coming from with that.
2: Yeah, it really does. It, um, one of the things I wanted to make sure I brought up is this BOSS framework. So BOSS stands for Brief Observation significance and suggestions. And what you did was you demonstrated use of the BOSS framework. You said there's a brief observation, like this is the detail that I saw. And this was the significance of that detail that she's in this situation. She did this and that demonstrated that she was had solid communication skills. And then the suggestion is what are the next steps for improvement for this learner?
1: I love that. You're teaching us and our learners to be bosses. This is so, this is great. (laughs) Well, Hannah is also really, oh, go ahead, Susie.
2: Oh, no, I think that's out of the University of Iowa. I was trying to look that up. um, But I think it's such a great framework.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Let's see if we can um, apply it to our next written evaluation as well, because Hannah was so impressed with your edits and your helpful feedback, Susie, that she's hoping to get your recommendations on improving a few other student evaluations. One that she brings to you is about Bob. Bob is passionate about medicine. He does an amazing job in clinic. Uh, Hannah is really impressed with his work ethic and his ability to see complex patients. He comes in early and he stays late. So I'm wondering, Susie, what problems exist within this narrative, uh, in your opinion, and how would you rewrite it?
2: So I think we still need more details here. This It looks like, yes, he is probably someone who's bringing value to clinic, um, and he, and his earnestness is probably really welcome in the clinical setting. But we need more details. Um, just because they're coming in early and leaving late doesn't mean their their clinical skills are spot on or that they're doing an excellent job with patient care. So in what ways is Bob demonstrating being passionate about medicine? In what ways is he demonstrating doing an amazing job in clinic? The work ethic, give more information. So it sounds like coming in early and staying late that that's an example of work ethic. So that might be like the one little detail that we do have here. And then his ability to see complex patients. Tell us about a complex patient. Um, I, I often try to include description about an interaction that the student has with a patient. So recently a a student was able to palpate a thyroid and and feel a thyroid nodule. So I would want to include that, like that this was a complex patient. The student was able to discern this upon physical exam, and this is the significance of that. And then I I also think you could frame this through the growth mindset as well of what is being demonstrated. So passionate, Bob is passionate is absolutely a fixed mindset statement. So how do we say what led the faculty member to judge that Bob is passionate? What did Bob do? What were the actual actions that Bob does that demonstrates his passion for medicine?
1: And Susie, that's super helpful. I wonder before we uh, share our rewritten Bob evaluation, which hopefully takes into account also the boss framework. I wonder this comment about coming in early and staying late. How do you navigate uh, and potentially encourage um, faculty or whoever is writing an error evaluation to avoid kind of encouraging any duty hour violations or kind of this, you know? Hero physician that is there somehow twenty four seven. How do we get that kind of across and change the language there?
2: Ooh, that's a that's a really hard one. Um, I think that that's an ongoing conversation with students and role modeling as well as involved. So with students, of course, I to I want to make sure every student eats lunch. I want to make sure that like when they need to go to the bathroom, they go to the bathroom. That they're not being a hero in those ways. We need to meet our own basic needs so that we can be excellent physicians and provide excellent care to others. For my clinic, um, I'm, I'm in an outpatient clinical setting. So coming in early and staying later for me is like in no way going to break duty hours. Um, but depending, like if they're on surgery and they're doing that, then that might be a different situation where they're, where they're doing inpatient call or something like that. Um, so of course, Every faculty is oriented um, with regards to duty hours. That's an LCME requirement that we need to do for accreditation purposes. So in that way, um, I think we can also role model, hey, time to go home. Like it's time to have a life outside of work. But I I do think it's important that students come prepared, which is probably different than coming in early or staying late. I I just need them to come on time and and ready to go and, and be willing to see patients in clinic.
0: You want to hear our edit? Um, yes. So we have Bob consistently reads up on complex patients. For example, in a patient with a rare infection, he researched primary data sources about the best antibiotic choice. He followed up with the patient after clinic to make sure that they were recovering as expected. He was able to consider the patient's complex comorbidities and polypharmacy when choosing the antibiotic.
2: Yeah, that's, those are solid comments. It sounds like Bob is really interested in, in next steps and complex patients. My, I would want to know how he's doing with simple patients or with chronic care patients? Those are the questions that pop up for me as possible next steps for him. I I also think that it's important. um, Let's go back to those original comments. Bob is passionate about medicine, does an amazing job in clinic, impressed with his work ethic and his ability to see complex patients. That possibly could also be perceived as gendered, um, that he's stepping up and doing these things. And so I I think that's another reason that we need to have details as well.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to our Final example here. Hannah writes, um, "Melissa's uh, HPIs are lacking information and confusing. She should do a better job organizing oral presentations."
2: So again, more details are needed. Um, what information specifically is lacking or confusing? If I'm a student reading this, I'm, I'm probably going, but I, <laughs> I'm already confused about how to like write a note or present an oral presentation. So, what part is is appropriate, and what part do I need to change? So. I, I actually think before writing these comments, there should be a conversation with the student about okay, when you did this, this was really appropriate, um, or this might be a framework that would be useful for you with your oral presentations for patients on the family medicine setting or on the surgical rotation. This is how we present patients in when we're rounding to give like a very specific framework, and then what what is and what is confusing or what is lacking out of that. So. Commonly, third-year medical students are starting to work on their interpreter skills, Um, so they often are missing associated symptoms in their HPIs. So that's something that's often missing. So maybe the faculty member could be more specific um, that their associated symptoms are lacking in the HPI or that maybe the the person is putting like the past medical history and the social history or, or things are seemingly disorganized.
1: And Susie, what do you think about our rewritten version that I'll share briefly? So Melissa obtains major details related to the chief complaint, but may miss important related information and review of systems. For example, when presenting a patient with cough, she omitted history around cardiac symptoms and signs of volume overload. I would encourage her to take a moment before presenting and organize her information in an organ-based approach.
2: That's That's spot on. If I'm a student, I know, okay, these are my next steps.
0: I think just working through this one when Ear er and I were making this script was really helpful for me to just thinking about bringing it back to just such granular specifics. And I really see you know how that is so much more valuable and so much more helpful. because um, I think sometimes when I'm writing evaluations, I want to give this global picture, but really you get much more valuable data from from the specifics.
2: Yeah, I th- I think that students need both, um, and I need both when I'm writing letters of recommendation. I I want to kind of remember the the feeling or the flavor of that working with that student, the gestalt of that experience with that student. I think that's really helpful to write in a letter, um, but I also want to be able to include specific details.
0: Um, well, one other question we had was kind of thinking about how narrative evaluations can Im- can reduce bias in grading. Um, So there's been some interesting literature uh, recently published by Gorith in 2021 that showed that the level of positivity in narrative evaluations doesn't always correlate with final grades. For example, women were more likely to have more positive comments, but actually equal grades. So how can we be using our narrative evaluations to reduce bias in grading?
2: So it's hard for me to say, like, specifically, this is how it happens. I, I just know that comments do help us to ground ourselves when reading students. Um, if I'm, not, I'm thinking, oh, I don't need to write a comment for this student, but then I check that they exceed expectations, then I might need to say, wait a second, like if I'm checking, like these two things are not in alignment. If I'm saying that they exceed expectations, then I, I really need to have a comment about why they're exceeding expectations. Um, or here in this specific case, if women are having more positive comments, but equal grades, if I'm checking that, if I'm writing positive comments, why would I check that they are meeting expectations? Those two things are not in alignment. If I'm writing really positive comments about an area, a, a domain, on the assessment form, I need to give a aligned rating as well.
0: Thanks. I think this has been super helpful. Any other pearls that you haven't uh, shared with us yet, or things that you think we didn't ask that are important when thinking about narrative evaluations?
2: I'm sure I'll think of something in <laughs> a half an hour.
0: That's okay. <laughs> and we'll take maybe.
2: No, I, I think the take home is. What is your motivation for writing feedback and comments? Um, And consider a framework. Use the rubric if needed. BOSS framework is really, really useful. And coming at it from a growth mindset and assuming the kindest motivation of others.
1: I love that, Susie. I was just going to ask, do you have any resources? This is separate from anything you'd like to plug, but any resources for us as faculty development to kind of boost our skills in narrative evaluation writing or narrative assessment in general, maybe things that you use to cultivate that growth mindset for yourself as somebody who's writing these evaluations all the time?
2: Well, I guess one resource that I'll also plug um, is the FIU clinical faculty development website. Um, That's easily Googleable. And I have a narrative medicine um, module. It was first written by Carla Lupi. She used to work here. And then I have continually revised that. Um, So that module anyone can do, it's free. And our faculty get CME for doing that module. Not everyone gets CME. That's one of our our carrots for our faculty members, um, one of their benefits of being members of our faculty team. And then, you know, one of the things that I do is I have one of those monthly lit searches set up with the NCBI um, or PubMed where I get emailed at the first of every month. Any articles that come up around, I think I have faculty development and assessment or feedback. I have all of those three keywords. And so I get any of the latest articles that are coming up about this topic. And that really is helpful for me to think about how I can train train our faculty in this area. I also think that the ACE handbook has some information on writing quality comments.
1: Can you remind us what the ACE handbook is really quick?
2: Oh, yeah. The ACE handbook, the um, Alliance for Clinical Education, they have a clerkship director's handbook. They also have an assessment handbook. And they're both really useful. My uh, clerkship director handbook, when I was clerkship director, I have all these tabs on it um, from when I used it so, so much. But I I used it primarily to uh, remediate students um, and professionalism issues, so that stuff that was more gray. Um, But I I think that there is some solid information in there also about writing comments. And then I, I guess another resource that was really, really important for me um, STFM, Society of Teachers of Family Medicine, excellent conferences. And every time I go to one of those conferences, I feel like my fingers are on the pulse of medical education in understanding what's next, what, where, where do I learn more? Um, I'm also a member of the SGEA, uh, Southern Group of Educational Affairs, SIG on Faculty Development. And that's where I, I learned about BOSS. Um, Shanu Gupta, one of my colleagues at University of South Florida, she t- um, introduced me to the BOSS framework. And so I, I have not actually seen that in writing anywhere. Um, and I don't know where she found it, but, but she was the person that introduced me to that. So I, I think it's so important to, to keep your fingers on the pulse of medical education by checking in with outside resources.
1: I think this episode could be renamed, How to Be a Boss. And uh, really using the (laughs) tip from Dr. Susie (laughs) Miner.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been so helpful and I think just so practical and and useful. Um, So we really appreciate your time. I guess. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Anything else that you'd like to plug? uh, Twitter feed or uh, (laughs) other work that you're doing or... (laughs)
2: <laughs> Not really. That's yet. okay. We, we
0: will definitely share your online course. I, I found it in preparation for this um, episode and it's very helpful. So I think the listeners will learn even more from, from uh, participating awesome. in that.
2: I am on Twitter. Um, I guess I could share my Twitter address. My Twitter handle is at minor underscore se. And I primarily try to try to tweet about med ed and healthcare. Awesome.
0: You, I'm not on Twitter, so it's okay but
2: <laughs> I got on Twitter because I was on a. Um, I was asked to be on an editorial board for a narrative medicine journal, and they said, "Hey, you need to be on Twitter." And I was like, oh, "Okay."
1: <laughs> I think that's that sigh is the reaction many of us have when we're told to get on Twitter. We're like, oh, okay,
2: <laughs> right? Really, I don't want one more input. more thing. One more social to- media. <laughs> yes, but I, I did find it. I, I, I'm really grateful for it during the pandemic. Um, yeah. I'm really grateful. I don't put a lot of my personal thoughts out there, but I'm really grateful for those people that do.
0: <laughs> so I think that was a great conversation with Susie. I really learned a lot thinking about narrative evaluations. And I think my take home is that I want to try out her her approach of having that feedback conversation and having the learner email me back with kind of a sum up and goals. I think it's a little bit similar to the B-bots that you guys are trying to use with the MedEd, but I don't always... See those back. I think I think they go more to the student, um, but I like having that really summed up, really planned next step for feedback. I agree, Molly. And just to clarify, the b bots or Bridges Brief Observation Tools.
1: And I totally um, love the framework that Susie presented about kind of making sure that there's a. Um, formalized written component and a summary from the student's perspective um, at the end that gets emailed to us because you're right, it, uh, the BeBots really do go into the dashboard for the student. And I love that boss name. I think it just really should be renamed in all of medical education as brief observation. What is the significance of this? What is a suggestion? And the last other point that I'll take from Susie's, there's so many points, but it was kind of seeing what we give and making sure that the verbiage that we use kind of goes through a growth filter, meaning what can be the next step for the learner to become the doctor that we want them to be, that we see, that we envision them being
0: in the future. So I really like that approach. Awesome. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders miniseries, Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash curbsiders teach. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge.
1: And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple podcasts, or contact us at teach at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to Claire Morgan of Natterly for editing our audio.
0: A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein.
1: And I'm Dr. Ira Krasinovskaia. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.